like for you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, and I want to read in chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. Now that's a lengthy text to read, and it would be helpful if you follow along with me. You, You know, you forget about what was said unless you're reading it yourself, especially on a long passage. When I preached in um, England, the preacher passed out these um, sheets of paper, and you were supposed to, you know, get the sermon title and the outline and and uh, points of the sermon. And then every night, uh, or after every service, he 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 asked the folks, you know, what did the preacher say? What was the title? What were the main points? What was he trying to get across? It's amazing what I. You know, what I found out I said. And, uh, and so if, if, I didn't have a ser- if I didn't announce a sermon title, then he always asked what it was. So I, I've got a sermon title, The Character of His Love. And I want you to follow reading, w- w- with me reading. I may not have anything else to say, but I do have a title. You can get that down. And it came about when Jesus went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread. They were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well, and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of, of honor or at the table, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, Do not take the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you might have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, Give place to this man. And and, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. You get a seat of honor and then somebody comes and says, You don't belong there. That would be kind of embarrassing, you said. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And he went on to say to the one who invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have 
bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it, please consider me excused. And another one said, I have bought the five yoke of oxen, I'm going to try them out, please consider me excused. And another one said, I've been, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what, are, what, ha, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and among the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of, these, of those men who invited shall taste of my dinner. A number of years ago, a, a physician by the name of Myron Norris told a story that you've probably heard. It was a story about a little girl, five years old, who had, an incur, had, a, had a, a rare disease that could only be cured by receiving a blood transfusion from somebody who had uh, conquered the same disease, who had the same blood type. And they did some tests and found that her seven-year-old brother had the rare, had conquered this rare disease, had her blood type. And so the, the physician went to the, the, the little boy and asked him if he would give his sister of his blood. And there was this hesitation and trembling lip. And after a moment of hesitation, he agreed that he would be willing to be transfused. And so the preparation was made and they were going to transfuse the blood directly from the little boy into his diseased sister. And, and nobody said a word and they hooked up the, the apparatus. And she was pale and, and, and sickly. And, and as the blood began to flow from her brother, uh, she just began, began to take on life and health. And, and just as the, the transfusion was about completed, the little boy broke the silence with this, Doctor, when am I going to die? And the physician, Myron Norris, said, For the first time I understood the pause and the trembling lip. And I was impressed, he said, at the, at the love of this boy in that he was willing to lay down his life for his sister. Jesus made an impressive statement in John 13 when He said, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for a friend. But you and I know that the word love is the most overworked and misunderstood word in the English language. If, if you go to the Webster's Unabridged Dictionary to find a definition of the word love, you'll find 72 lines devoted to that one word as scholars try to grapple with this evasive concept. It's a fond affection. It's a zero score in tennis. The tomato has been called the love fruit. There is a vegetable, there is a flower called love in mist. And there's a hairdo called the love lock. Now can you imagine somebody who is working with the English language for the first time and he gets his dictionary and he comes to that word to find its meaning and how do you put together a word, the definition that means fond affection, zero score in tennis and a 
garden vegetable. It's somewhat pointless, I think, in a, in a fatherless generation to talk about the fatherhood of God. As a matter of fact, somebody said that that phrase, the fatherhood of God for the majority of the people, does not have a positive connotation. I think the same thing is true with the phrase, God is love. I mean, what does that mean when you use the same word for a fond affection, a zero score in tennis, and a hairdo? I want you to think with me briefly about what love has come to mean in our culture. It is temporary. It's a temporary marriage. It's a temporary parent. It's a temporary friend. There's a favorite phrase that's used in many weddings now is this, as long as we both shall love. It's not as long as we both shall live. As long as we both shall love, which means I love you today, but I'm not sure about tomorrow. We'll have to wait and see about that. It's temporary. It's talk. It's words, beautiful words to be sure, well-meaning words, words that make us feel good, but they're like bubbles. When you bite into them, there's no substance there. It's like a father who says to his son, I love you and you're special. And yet he never spends any time with the boy. About the last time he spent any time with his son was a Saturday morning. He took him on an errand he had to run. And he promises that little boy, we're going to take a fishing trip together. And so every morning that little boy is out in the driveway practicing his cast. You know, waiting for that planned fishing trip. It seems to never come. It's that groom who says to the bride, till death do us part. And now it's a year later and he's parted and the marriage is dead and she's trying to pick up the pieces. It's the boss who says to you or his employer, you're doing a good job, you're doing great, stay with it and the next promotion that comes you're in line for. It's been two years and you're doing a good job and yet the promotion doesn't come and your boss begins to evade you. It's, it's, uh, it's talk. And because it has no real meaning... It's untrustworthy a lot of times. I mean, we, we, we hear people say, I love you. It doesn't move us. I watched as a familiar television artist signed off her show on television, blowing kisses to the camera, and she said, remember, I love you. I wasn't moved by that. I mean, I didn't write mother and, and say this girl said she loved me on television because I knew she wasn't talking about me, and if she were talking to me, she didn't mean it. I mean, what does it do to you to see all these bumper stickers, God loves you, smile, you unmoved by that. I mean, that, that word has been so used, it's empty and untrustworthy. The decade of the 70s was a turbulent and violent decade. At the end of the decade of the 70s, Newsweek magazine uh, ran a synopsis, an overview of that decade. In the November issue in, 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 in 1979, they did a, a survey of what went on in the 1970s. And there was an interesting article in that, uh, in that uh, issue in, in which the editors sent out a, a, 
a survey to 22 of the great thinkers in America. And they asked them one question. What do you believe will be the question of the 80s? What do you believe will be the focal point or the issue of the 80s? And they got some predictable responses. Will America increase its productivity? Will America become dependent on the Middle East for its energy? Will America uh, revive its credibility in the world? Will America live in peace with Russia? Predictable questions. But right in the middle of those questions was a question raised by the philosopher Octavio Paz. It was this. Will America reinvent love? And this is what he said about it. He said, if this society is to recover... We're going to have to reinvent love which has become an abstraction, quote-unquote. He said the musicians and the poets are going to have to reinvent images of love. Now I think he had the right idea, but I'm not sure that the poets and the musicians are going to have the answers. And I'm not really sure that we need to reinvent love. I think what we need to do is to rediscover the old love. We we need to rediscover the eternal love. Now the Bible says that God is love. That means that if you want to look at what love looks like, you look at God and not the dictionary. And Colossians says that Jesus... Christ is the image of the invisible God and that means that Jesus imaged God. And if Jesus imaged God, He imaged the love of God. He imaged love. And so what we really need to do, I think, is to rediscover the image that, of love that Jesus expressed. We need to see again love as Jesus imaged it. And so we're going to take out this section from the Gospel of Luke because there we find the three primary characteristics of love as Jesus imaged it from God. And I'm convinced that if you looked in the Gospels anywhere and found Jesus relating to people, you'd find these same characteristics everywhere you looked. In the first verse of chapter 14, Jesus is at at the home of a Pharisee for for bread, for lunch. And they're sitting there reclining at lunchtime and all of a sudden, you know, these Pharisees have been scrutinizing Jesus. They're watching Him, looking over His shoulder. They've been watching Him all His earthly ministry. See what He's going to do. And all of a sudden, there just appears before Jesus this diseased man. Now, I don't know what you thought when you read that the first time, but what came to my mind was, how'd this man get there? I mean, where'd he come from and how'd he get there? Well, when the Pharisees left the service of worship and went to somebody's house to eat lunch, they invited the public. In fact, they encouraged the public to to come along. And while the Pharisees sat and ate and discussed theological matters, the rest of the folks sat around and listened and learned. And so in this crowd of listeners was this diseased man. All of a sudden, he stands in the front of Jesus. Now, Jesus confronts the Pharisees. He'd already gotten in trouble with healing on the Sabbath day. They'd caught him doing those things 
that, that were unlawful to the Pharisees, their laws. You know, they had those laws, of course. And then they had what theologians called hedges around the laws to protect the laws. For example, if the law was, Thou shalt not throw rocks on Sunday, on the Sabbath, the hedge that protected that law might be, Thou shalt not collect rocks on Sunday. Thou shalt not pick up a rock on Sunday. Thou shalt not look at a rock on Sunday. So you got your law and you got your hedge to protect the law. I mean, they couldn't even eat an egg on Sunday because the chicken had to work to produce the egg, you know. The true story. They had all these laws concerning the Sabbath. And here was this diseased man standing in front of Jesus. And he confronts them with this issue. Do you heal a man on the Sabbath or not? They couldn't answer that. Now I'm impressed with what Jesus did. In verse 4 it says that Jesus took hold of him. And I can just see that man standing there frightened as he faces the anger of the Pharisees. And Jesus puts his arm around him. Now... It points out the first characteristic of the love of God as Jesus imaged it. It is very personal and very individual. Ladies and gentlemen, we're fast becoming a society of faceless, nameless people. Some sociologists say that this is the decade of the thingified which means that we are ceasing to be individuals and are becoming more and more just numbers. About the closest thing we are to being remembered is that some computer knows our name. I got this letter recently. This computer letter had a computer label on it. It was, it was addressed to First Baptist Church 124 West Evergreen, Durant, Oklahoma. Started out, Dear Mr. Church. And, and, and it talks about the, this product. And along about the middle of the, of the letter, it got real personal and, and started calling me by my first name. It says, I'm sure, church, uh, I'm sure first, that, that you will, you know, if you try our product, you will enjoy it. Now, now I really didn't get a letter like that. But I'm expecting one any day. The poet put it like this, perhaps in despair. Today I met a man, but not really. Our path crossed. The private paths of our own separate worlds made a juncture and we were there. We told our impersonal names and shook each other's hand. Warmly and firmly to convey our interest, which wasn't there. We shared our views on weather, politics, and current news, and other things which weren't there. And when the conversation lagged, we said, Good to have met you. Same here. We lied, smiled, extended our hands, and parted. Glad to be on our way from our little meeting today. I met a man but not really. Sociologists say that the people of our generation meet more people in one year than the generation preceding us met in a lifetime. 
And yet we just kind of pass one another like ships in the night. We meet, but not really. And the Bible, just a casual reading of the Bible, will reveal a stark contrast in the life of Jesus. He, he had time to take a little child and sit it on its lap and talk. And he had time to spend with a woman at the well a half a day and they just talked. And he had time to go home with a publican he found in a tree and they just talked. And I'm amazed by the fact that God knows my name. Doesn't that amaze you? Not that he knows my name, but that he knows yours, that he knows ours. It means that God cares about us. He's concerned about our needs and he cares about what we think. Have you ever been in a conversation of adults and there's some kids kind of out there on the edge, on the periphery? And you can tell they want in that conversation so bad. You know, they got so much to contribute to that conversation. But they can't get in it. And so these adults, you, you've seen that, haven't you? You know, you, you've been there. And these adults are talking, you know, and these kids are just, ooh, wish I had a chance to get in that conversation. And, and have you ever noticed if somebody dares to say, you know, some adult looks at the kid and says, what do you think? I mean, they get into that. They, you can just see the, 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 the excitement just kind of come over them and they get into that conversation and you can't get them out after that. I mean, parents, you, we ought to do that. You know, when we're sitting around talking to one another, we ought to turn to our kids sometime and just say, what do you think? I mean, you get them into the conversation and there's new life. And you know what they're saying? You can just read their minds. This is what they're thinking. This is what they're thinking. He's interested in what I'm thinking. He's interested in what I have to say. That's why the psalmist said in 116, The Lord heard my voice and my supplication, therefore I'll call on Him for as long as I live, because I know that when I call on God, He's concerned about what I have to say. His love is personal and individual. Notice the second thing. Jesus turned to them and He the people that were there, the invited guests, and he started giving this parable. He said, now, don't go rushing for the head seats of honor. That was a common practice of the Pharisees, you know, when they had these seats at the table or places where they're meeting, they all made a beeline for the number one seat, you know, a call the, call the front office and bingo, front row type thing. And, 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 and they fought for that front row seat, you know, hey, front row here kind of a thing. And Jesus said, you know, don't get the head Row, take, take the, you know, give that to somebody else. And then he told this remarkable parable. Look at this. He said, when you have a dinner, don't invite folks that can pay you back. Invite the folks that can't pay you back. If you're going to have a banquet, don't ask folks who can come, that can, you know, to come who can pay you back. Invite the people that can never return the favor. You know, you know what our philosophy is? I'll scratch your back if I know you're going to scratch mine in return, see. He said, don't do that. In other words, and I thought, you know, what does that mean? You know what that means? It means that Jesus was saying, you need to give for the sake of giving. You need to love for the sake of loving. Nobody does that, do they? And it points up the second characteristic in the, life, in the love Jesus image, and it's this. 
It was totally unselfish, selfless. I mean, he just gave for the need. He just loved to love. He just gave because he wanted to give, not because he expected, you know, something in return. You see, we have become so suspicious that we think if somebody gives something or expresses love, there's got to be an ulterior motive to that somewhere. Now that's what's happened. You don't believe that? You take ten $1 bills this morning and you go over to the mall in Sherman and stand out front and try to hand them out. The first person that comes up to you is going to say, hey, what's the catch here? What's the deal? You know, that's what we think. And there are going to be a lot of folks that just kind of walk around you. Hey, hey, take a one, uh, uh, you know. They're going to walk around you like you got the plague. And the challenge of that is going to be to hand out those $1 bills before the security guard comes out and asks you what you're doing there. Because we're not going to give just to give, are we? Nobody does that. Have you ever won one of those sweepstakes things? I've got to be the luckiest guy in the whole world because I win one of those things every week. I mean, chosen out of thousands. And, and they always these prizes like a trip to Hawaii or a new boat, $1,000 in cash, or a pen and pencil set. I just know that somewhere there's this gigantic warehouse that's got thousands of cases of pens and pencils because that's what you win. Now, I get these calls, you know, and I get these letters that say, we just chose you out of a list of thousands of people as the lucky winner. We want to give you something. I, you know what I say? Uh-uh. Whoa, yeah, what's the catch? The first thing I do with that sheet of paper is I chunk it because in our society, in our culture, nobody just gives to give, do they? Nobody just loves to love, do they? Nobody does that. The only one, only person I know who is like that is Jesus. He just loves to love. He just gives to give. He just reaches out and he, and he said, Now if you want to be like me, if you want to live like me, do like I do. If you want to be like that, then you give without expecting anything in return. I just hate those tithing testimonies that say, If you give $10, you'll get $100 back. My soul, that just turns me off completely. Jesus said, this is the way you do it. This is the kind of love that images God's love. It's a love that just gives to give and loves to love. One last thing. It's a love that is vulnerable. It's a love that's vulnerable. And he said... It's like this, you give a banquet and you reach out to give and nobody takes it. Rejection. He said, here's this guy and he's playing this big meal and he gets the head waiter together during the week and said, how many folks are we going to be able to count on? The guy said, I hate to tell you this, nobody's coming. Nobody's coming? You mean I'm fixing this banquet? I'm spreading out this and I'm giving when, when, and, and I'm expecting nothing in return and nobody's coming. He said, nobody's coming. 
That's my fear. My sheer terror that I have nightmares about is that someday I'll get up and preach and everybody leaves after the song service. True story, you know. Rejection. Or that I get up and preach and nobody comes. I mean, it's nothing like rejection. It's the hardest blow of all. Did you know that sometime your love is going to be rejected? That there'll be times when you want to give and nobody wants what you have? Are you willing for that? Are you ready for that? There are times when you may reach out as an expression of love and that is turned thumbs down? Are you ready for that? The poet tries to make us feel better when he says it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. But that doesn't help me much. I don't like it when I want to give and nobody wants what I have. I don't like it when I want to love and nobody returns my love. I tell you what, it's difficult to be vulnerable, to have a love that says, I'll love you whether you want my love or not, whether you accept my love or not. Let me tell you something. That's the amazing quality of the love of God. Let me, let me, tell you, let me show you something. Listen to this carefully. God's going to love you whether you respond positively to that love or not. Because his love, he's willing to be vulnerable. And he said, well, what's the matter here? Well, the guy said, well, one man said he had a piece of land, he had to go check it out. That's the, that's the uh, business excuse. Now, I, the business just won't let me. You ever heard that one? The other one said, I have some oxen, I got to go try them out. That's the labor excuse. I got so much to do, I can't come. Please excuse me. The other said, I, I've married a wife and can't come. Now, that sounds kind of weird. But in the Levitical law, if a man got married, he was excused from military service for a whole year. And the reason the, military, the, the Levitical law said he could be excused was so he could cheer his wife up. I guess when she discovered what she got into, it was going to take a year to cheer her up. And so he was excused for, for one year of service in order to cheer up his wife. Now... So, so it wasn't really, it wasn't an unusual thing for a person to say, I've married a wife and I cannot come. It's the family excuse. All kinds of excuses. I have this to offer and nobody wants it. And so the master said, head, head waiter, this is what we'll do. Go out there to the bobtails and the lowlifes and the ragtags of society and invite them to my banquet for the thing that pleases me is that people are grateful for the opportunity. You know what pleases God? It's that you and I are just grateful for the opportunity sitting at His table. You know what pleases God? Is that you and I are just pleased that we have an opportunity to be in His house and share in His goodness. Now see three lessons. I want you to get these and then I'll quit. Because His love is personal, it means that I am somebody, I am significant. In an age that has become computerized, and I'm a computerized readout, it says that I am important and I count. Because His love is selfless, 
It means that I can never repay His love. I can never repay Him. He didn't want me to. What He wants is that I be grateful in life and limb, in life and lip for what I have. And because His love is vulnerable, it means that I must respond either in faith or in rejection. And that's the whole point of this parable. And that's the whole point of this sermon is that I am confronted this morning not with the wrath of God but with the love of God that says to me, I love you as you are. Now how are you going to respond to that? Are you going to reject my love? Are you going to faith or submit to it? And I suggest to you that that's the real question of the 80s. What are you going to do with a God who loves you personally, unselfishly, and vulnerably. Let's pray together. Father, confront us today again and again with the love that drew salvation's plan and cause us to respond on the basis of your love and goodness and when our response is on that basis, it will please you and glorify your work in the world. This is my prayer in Jesus' name for his sake. Now there are three invitations. The first invitation is for you to respond to the love of God first time for your salvation. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What He desires of you and me is that we respond to that love in faith, submission and surrender to be saved. Second invitation is for your church membership to come and say as others have in the last months, I want to be a part of this fellowship. Because God's will is for me to be here. Or maybe this morning you need to come to say, I want to respond to the love of God in this manner. I want to live a life worthy of His love for me, knowing that grace always demands the best gift. Would you make one of those responses as we stand to sing? Come quickly. Come prayerfully to God this morning, would you, while we sing.